Well, I got a question for you to start off this morning. Uh, let's say, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I know that you have some people in your life that need to know Jesus. Maybe it's, a, a, maybe it's your neighbors, maybe it's family members, maybe they're friends, maybe they're just acquaintances somehow. But I bet if I asked every single person here individually, do you know somebody who needs to meet Jesus? You would say, yes. Right? Jesus said, go into all the world, you know, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them to follow me, and, and I will be with you in the midst of all of that, as long as you're doing that work. I bet you could think of somebody who needs to know Jesus. Now, let me ask you a second question. Let's say, hypothetically, that person comes to know Jesus. Do you want that person coming to your church? I mean, think about it. Some of the people who need to know Jesus are not people we like very much, are they? Does anyone know people like that? Yeah, I, I, I do. Now, first of all, that's a problem with, with me <laughs> and with all of us that we don't love the way that God loves. So this is not a sermon about, you know, having permission to wish that people wouldn't come to your church. Rather, I want to point out that, uh, you know, we, we know and we believe and we may even live like everybody we meet needs to know Jesus, but that doesn't mean we really want a relationship with everybody in our lives, does it? Now, I don't think we can have a meaningful relationship with every person that we meet. Uh, sometimes that's overwhelming to me. You know, I pull into the gas station or something. I go inside to, to buy a snack or a soda or whatever it is, and there's some guy in the checkout line, and I think, you know, I need to become this person's best friend and to share Jesus with them and change their life. We can't do all of that. We can't be best friends with everyone in life. We won't be best friends with everyone in life because, frankly, that's a two-way street, and some people don't like me either, believe it or not. But I think it was a sobering question for me because I think that's what this passage is about this morning. It's about, okay, we know everybody needs to know Jesus. Everybody needs to meet Jesus. And God has called me to be a part of that mission together with my church and sometimes even sending me individually out to do that. But what do I do when they say yes? And maybe I really... Like, can I direct them to the church down the street? Unfortunately, we can't because we are the only church in Lemon Cove. But I think sometimes we wish that that was the case. Let, let me unpack this a bit because that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. You see, uh, uh, Philip one of the apostles, has left Jerusalem because he's been driven out by persecution. Stephen, last week, uh, for us, we heard about how Stephen gave this great sermon and the people covered their ears and shouted so they didn't have to hear it, took him outside, stoned him, and then Saul, who would eventually become the apostle Paul through this amazing miracle, but Saul started going from house to house, asking if you were Christian, and if you were, he would throw you in jail, he would beat you up, and in extreme cases, he might even approve of your death. And so the church spread out of Jerusalem, and Philip, driven out of Jerusalem, ended up in Samaria. Now, Samaria is not the sort of place that nice Jews like Philip would go. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. 
This wasn't like, oh, you know, we, we disapprove of those people. This was visceral hatred. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of why this was true. First of all, uh, the Samaritans, there was an ethnic hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because uh, the Samaritans were, we believe, the people who were left behind after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria. A lot of the people were deported out of there. Some stayed behind. And then they intermarried with people from other countries and other ethnicities there. And that was a no-no for the Jews. So there's a racial and a religious hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that came from their their origins. Secondly, there was a theological hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that was made worse by the ethnic hatred between them. It was because the Samaritans said, well, we only believe in the first five books of the the Torah, right? That is the Torah. We only believe in the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's all. And they even had a slightly different version of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And one of the most important beliefs that they had is that, well, the Jews built the temple in the wrong place. They put it in Jerusalem, and really it belongs on Mount Gerizim, a little ways away. We encounter this in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes to Samaria. He talks to the Samaritan woman and she says, where should we worship? She was picking at the scab saying, you're a Jew. You're wrong about these things. And Jesus, of course, knows what he's talking about and he worked that out. That's not the important thing for us this morning. What I want to point out is there is this religious differentiation. The place where we go to meet God is different. And the Jews, a couple of centuries before this, gathered together an army, went to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had built their own temple slash tabernacle, and they blew it up, or whatever you did in the second century BC. They destroyed it, absolutely. Do you think that the Samaritans might have remembered that? And still been angry about it all those years later? Of course they were. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And so when Philip ended up in Samaria, I'm sure that there was a sense both of, you know, Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to all the Gentiles, to everybody everywhere. So Philip says, okay, I've got to tell these people about Jesus. And he started telling them about Jesus. And I just wonder what Philip thought was going to happen. If he thought that it would be sort of, you know, the Samaritans uh, would, would be angry and kick him out. And then Philip could be like, well, Jesus, I went and I did what you said. I told the Samaritans about you. They rejected you. Let's bring on the fire. Because actually in the Gospel of Luke, remember Luke wrote Acts as well. There is a scene in which the Samaritans won't let Jesus come through Samaria because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And you know what the disciples said? Teacher, shall we call down fire from heaven on these people? They didn't like each other. You you get the point? They hated each other. So what what did Philip expect? Whatever he expected, here's what happened. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said. I wonder if that was hard for Philip. The Jews in Jerusalem, after a wonderful response, had now rejected 
Philip and the apostles and Jesus. And now the Samaritans, whom, if Philip's a good Jew, he probably hates, are listening carefully. And there was great joy in the city. And people believed, it says in verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This is exactly what the early stages of the ministry in Jerusalem were like. Hundreds and thousands of people coming to Jesus at a time, but it's happening in the wrong place, Jesus. It's happening in Samaria. And then we we come to this interesting person, Simon. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was summoned great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him. But when they believed Philip, they gave him up. And Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. First of all, I think there's a a message for us here in that I think as Christians, sometimes we become fearful about sharing who Jesus is and what he's done. We're fearful that we'll be rejected. We're fearful that Jesus won't show up for us. Yeah, it's great that he shows up for Philip. Philip's an apostle. I'm just... Ian in Lemon Cove. It's not going to show up for me, right? But you have Simon who's amazing everybody. They're, the Samaritans are following Simon. And then when Philip comes and he just tells him about Jesus and the Holy Spirit works through him. And he is people everyone can tell. Philip is in touch with a greater power than Simon. They gave up Simon. Even Simon himself said, what Philip can do, I cannot do. And he's amazed, and he follows. What's the difference between you and I and Philip? Anybody? I mean, this is the question and answer part of the sermon. What's the difference between you and me and Philip? Yeah, essentially, nothing. Philip is an apostle. He has an authority that I think we don't have. He has a unique authority as one of the 12 apostles. But in terms of his acceptability before God the way that God wants to use him or or not use him, we are no different. Philip isn't a follower of Jesus because Jesus was like, oh man, I gotta have Philip. Philip is gonna go to Samaria and they're gonna listen to him. No, 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 it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is like, Philip has believed in me, so I will give him the Spirit and he will be able to serve me powerfully. Folks, have you believed in Jesus this morning? Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Amen. That's right. We have believed in Jesus. That's what makes us acceptable before God. That's how God wants to use us as believers in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And and there are reasons for that, right? Uh, Elaine was saying Philip was bold, right? And, And we're often scared. So remember how Philip became bold? Remember a few chapters ago, they got hauled in front of the religious leaders. They told them, stop preaching or something bad will happen to you. And they went back together. They went to church. We love church. They went to church together. And what did they do? They prayed for boldness. That's it. 
The same resources that are available to Philip are available to you and me today. So we can go out. But Philip, like we said, he's got a problem. The people of Samaria, they have responded in an overwhelmingly positive way. And I think that there is a sense, I, I, Philip is a spectacular, amazing guy, but I think there is a sense of caution in Philip's approach to all of this. Because here's what happens. The apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. When they heard that, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers uh, there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Why not? Because they had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to do at the end of Matthew? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Samaritans were only baptized into the name of Jesus. And I think it's, I think that we're meant to see here that there is a sense of, okay, these people can belong to Jesus, but what kind of citizens are they going to be? First class or second class? Can we really trust them with the Holy Spirit? I mean, they're Samaritans. And not just that, but before we got here, they were following the, the magician. And we know that's wrong. Like, we can't really trust these people. Is that an understandable attitude at all for us who are here? Yeah, I think so. I think that, first of all, we have legitimate concerns when people come to faith in Jesus for the very first. You say they only just got to know Jesus. Let's not make them the preacher next week. <laughs> right? Let's not put them in a, in a position where someone with, with a spiritual maturity ought to be. So that's a legitimate concern. But I think there's also a concern of just how much should we really include these people at the end of the day. How much should we sort of hold their history against them going forward? Folks, here is the wonderful and frightening truth. The future of the church is not in the people who are already here, but in the people who will come. And the people who will come will not come so that they can keep the church the same as we've always known it. They will transform the church as it is. Folks, if we had a thriving ministry to people who are addicted in one way or another, are those people that Jesus wants to reach? Are those people that God will use powerfully in ministry? Are those people who will change the culture of the church that we belong to? They will. It can't be any other way. Otherwise, we're making them second-class citizens. You're acceptable, not so long as you're like Jesus, but so long as you're like so long as you're like us. Now, here's what I'm not saying this morning, because I know we've had some concern about this in the church recently. What I'm not saying is, let's abandon everything that we've always been and be something else instead. Because you're still going to be here, and I'm still going to be here. And there are promises that I've made to you, and I don't know if you've heard them and really understood them, but I've told you things like, you know, hymns are in our DNA, and our DNA doesn't change. 
We may add to them, but we will not take away. Does that make sense? We will preserve something of who we are because who we are is valuable and it matters and God has done good things. And at one point, we were the future of the church as well. And that was a good future. But we are going to change. You know what the dumbest thing that we could possibly do is? And we do it all the time, so we're all kind of dumb, right? You ever sit in front of the TV watching the news? You're like, those hippies. I want to change everything. I want to make it different. You know, they, now I'm touching some nerves, aren't I? <laughs> I tell you all the time, I don't want ever anyone in here to complain about young people because that is so boring because that's what your parents did. And that's what the parents of your parents did. And that's what their parents did. Every older generation has always complained about every younger generation. Like, it's just getting worse and worse. We're, we're so much closer to hell than we were before because of these young people. We have the Homer Simpson attitude. I believe that children are our future unless we stop them first. It's so boring. It's so boring. Can we break that cycle here? Can we start saying, I don't care if the people God has brought us are Samaritans or not. God has brought us the people that we need for this church to have a future. And we are going to engage them and we are going to nurture them and we are going to help them to grow and we are going to recognize what God brings to us through them that we didn't have before. You know the great thing about the younger generations right now? They really care about making a difference in the world that they live in. Now, we may not. I, I include myself in this because I'm just an old person trapped in a young person's body. And it's not even that young anymore. I'm turning 40 this year. So I know some of you out there are still like, you're so young. But trust me, I'm older than I used to be. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> I feel like I've lost you all now. <laughs> but, but here's, you know, can we recognize how exciting a future is with people who will build on to what we've built instead of just maintaining what we've built? Let me tell you something about maintaining what we've built. This church, I love this church. I love our buildings. I love our facilities, some more than others or less than others. But we have a good, a good property. And it's, it's full of, of what we need to you know, do ministry in Lemon Cove. It is a gift of God. And for the last 60-ish years that these buildings have been here, we have basically just patched holes when they appeared. And, you know, we've, uh, uh, you know, fixed some siding when it fell off. We've done some work in, in the yard and kind of cleaned it up. But after 60 years, I have to tell you, there's some wear and tear in this place that just patching holes isn't going to fix any longer. And it, this isn't like the fundraising campaign or something. But I, I think that's a good description, a good analogy 
for where we are spiritually as people as well. We have this wonderful, amazing history, and it's taken us this far. But if we want to go farther, you know, just like it's time in some ways to make some investments in the building, put a new roof on, right? We didn't just patch the holes. We put a whole new roof on the whole facility. And maybe we need to do some of that in our culture as well. Maybe we need to go out and say, we don't just need you know, new people. I don't, even, I don't care if they're young or old or anything in between. Maybe what we need to say is we need, we need those folks to continue coming in, not so we can build a, lem, a, a, a mega church in Lemon Cove. We're never going to build a mega church in Lemon Cove. That's not the mission or the vision for this place. But we just need that constant influx of people who are a little bit different than we are because they will see things about Jesus that we have missed and they will reach into communities that we weren't able to reach into ourselves. And we need a little bit of creativity in figuring out what are the next steps. And then we need a lot of courage. We need that boldness, don't we? To say, let's step into that future. Let's go where God is taking us. What would have happened to the church if Philip didn't go to Samaria? I'll tell you what would have happened. See, Samaria was a stepping stone. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning of the church's mission outside of this cloistered sort of people and environment. It was the beginning of the church going into all of the world. And if they'd never taken that step into Samaria, they may never have taken that step outside of Palestine and outside of Asia and outside of Europe. If Philip didn't go to Samaria, then you and I wouldn't be sitting here this morning. I'm just about guarantee it. Someone had the courage to say, I don't care if that Ian is wild and crazy and I really don't want to do what he wants to do and I don't care about the things that he cares about. No one ever had the courage to say, I'm going to tell Ian about Jesus. I wouldn't be here. And I don't know what my life has meant. Someday God will show that to me. But I hope I hope it means some other things would be different too. That God used me in ways that were wonderful and exciting as well. You know, before we leave this passage, I, I need to tell you one other thing, which is that uh, Pentecostalism uh, understands this passage somewhat differently than I've described it to you this morning. Uh, Pentecostalism says that, hey, uh, when... Uh, when the uh, apostles needed to come and actually lay hands on these people and pray that they'd receive the Holy Spirit. That's actually the pattern for how Christian ministry happens. And I, I want to tell you about this, not because I got an axe to grind against the Pentecostals, because God bless them, they're part of the family, but because I think this is really important for us, and because a number of you here have encountered this in the past, that if you haven't received this second gift, which is how the Pentecostals understand it here, of the Holy Spirit, then you are a sort of second-class Christian. 
We're not even sure if you're really saved. I know some of you, you and your children have heard that from different Christian churches, and that's just not true. Like like I said, I love the Pentecostals. They're part of the family. But I think this is really, really significant. In Romans uh, chapter 8, Paul is telling people about life in the Spirit. And he says... If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the corollary is true as well. Those who are not led by the Spirit of God are not God's children. So this is really an important question. When does the Holy Spirit come to us? And the answer is as soon as we believe in Jesus Christ. It's not that the Holy Spirit might not do a new and more powerful work later in life, but that there are no second-class Christians. There are only people who are adopted into God's family by faith through the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian apart from a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, and we do not earn the Spirit. He is given to us as a gift that comes from faith. So if you ever come across somebody, or if you're ever told this as, uh, yourself as well, I want you to have this defense for yourself. Someone says, you know, you, you don't have the Holy Spirit because you haven't received that second baptism. You say, no, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I couldn't do that without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of my life. And if you come across somebody else, and this has been my experience, who says, I was rejected by a church because they said you haven't received that second baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, in Pentecostalism is usually associated with speaking in tongues, then, first of all, you just tell them you need to reread First and Second Corinthians. Because First and Second Corinthians is written to churches like yours that say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're a second-class Christian. And Paul says, first of all, speaking in tongues, not not the greatest gift. That's prophecy. I wish everyone was a prophet. But he says, most of all, understand that every person has their gift from God by means of the Holy Spirit. And not everybody has the same gift. That's exactly the point that Paul says, it's like we're a big body. And some of you are like the nose, and some of you are like the hands, and some of you are, he even says, are like the less presentable parts that we guard with a special modesty. I always wondered, who are those people? Let's move on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get penalized for that joke later, but, um, but that's exactly Paul's point. You cannot say, because you are not the I, who cares about you? Where would the body be, Paul says, without the sense of smell? That'd be a real bummer. Some of you had COVID and you lost your sense of smell. And you know, that's terrible, right? Not only can you not smell what's happening around you, but you can't taste. And there is nothing better in life than eating delicious food. Why even live without a sense of smell? Except to serve Jesus, of course. There we go. But I just want to equip you with that this morning. I, I don't mean it in a fighting sort of way, like let's, let's go to battle with the Pentecostals, but rather I hope in a protecting and an encouraging sort of way. I think that that really is an error, and I think it's an error that matters and that really transforms the way we understand the Christian life. 
So I want to equip you with that. And that's the end of the sermon for today. It was an excellent transition, probably the best transition I have ever made in my life. Uh, We're coming up. We started the sermon a bit late this morning because we had a lot to do. So what I want to do is respond to God's word this morning and say, we are all people, every single one of us, that God has called on purpose to this place and to the communities and the peoples that we encounter and that we belong to. And let's never make the mistake of saying, you know, because of whatever, you only sort of belong here or we don't want you at all. Let's ask God for his Holy Spirit to fill us again this morning. So like Philip, we'll go out, we'll share the gospel, even with people that we might not want to come to our church and then see God knit us together. Because that's what happened in the end of that story. Peter and John came to Samaria. They laid their hands on them. And they said, I know we had some questions, but you are part of the family. 